1: Here we are. We're starting the recording. Uh, Today is October 12th, 2022. This is a podcast for the New Books Podcast. My name is Bill Domnarski. I often forget to say that, but it is Bill Domnarski. And today we're going to be talking about the recently published Norton Anthology of American Literature, all five volumes of it. And we have as the guest, kind of a special guest, I think, is Robert is it Levine? Or, yes, or am I Levine. pronouncing it Levine,
0: yes. Levine,
1: who is a distinguished professor of English at the University of Maryland. He's going to tell us uh, about how this book or this anthology came into being and all kinds of related, interesting questions about the anthology as it relates to university education. So thank you, Robert. I can call you Bob. Is that all right? Bob's good, and, and thanks for having me. Okay, this is going to be fun. Everyone I've had a podcast with so far has said that it was fun, and my goal is not so much to make you laugh, but to um, to um, get you to talk about your, your work and your life, and people usually enjoy doing that, and what I've learned is that the audience really likes learning about what people have done, where they are, where they've been, that kind of thing. So as I said, we're talking about the Norton Anthology of American Literature, which is uh, five volumes. The first volume goes to It's called beginnings to 1820 volume 2 is 1820 to 1865 volume 3 is 1865 to 1914 and then we have american literature 1914 through 1945 and then 1945 to the present and i should also add that there is another companion anthology which is the shorter version it's just two volumes the shorter version of the Norton Anthology of American Literature, which I've looked at pretty carefully also. These are tremendous books, um, Bob, they really are. Thank you. Because I was thinking uh, people talk a lot in the news world these days about how we get our news, which maybe think, and there has been a sea change uh, in the way we get our news from say 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Um, maybe think though about how we get our literature And I was thinking of my own um, uh, university career, and I talked with some other folks and it varies fairly widely. So not everyone uh, goes the way of the anthology. There are introductory courses that don't use anthologies, uh, but anthologies seem to me to be the way to go for an introductory class in American literature. That must be the theory of the Norton people who are behind this anthology.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, especially the two-volume version can work really well in introductory classrooms. The um, interesting thing about the five-volume, the five-split, is that it can work well in introductory classrooms. We have some professors who will order the box that has, say, beginnings to 1865, the two volumes, and then the, the box that has 1865 to the present with three volumes. We have others that will go with the shorter version both make sense i teach an advanced course in american literature from the revolution to 1865 and i use the second volume the 1820 to 1865 so people can get a really comprehensive mm-hmm. feel for the period so on the one hand i think these is really good for introductory courses on the other hand these uh, the long splits you know you could choose one of those volumes for a course really immerses you in the period and we find we do incredibly well at community colleges but we also um sell a lot of the anthology to state universities and to places like berkeley and harvard so we have multiple audiences that we're trying to serve and introductory courses are great and also some of the advanced courses Uh, lend themselves well to these books.
1: Now I should have added that not only are you the general editor of this edition of the Norton Anthology, you're also the volume editor of American Literature 1820 to 1865. So you had that specialty in those uh, decades. Right. As well as being the general editor. So um, do you have any information about which volume sells the best? Um, I actually think that that particular
0: volume that you mentioned, 1820 to 1865, sells the best, and that's because in an old-fashioned sense, people thought of this period as the period of the American Renaissance, kind of a period where American literature is being invented by people like Hawthorne, Melville, Emerson, Thoreau, Whitman, and Dickinson. Um, All the volumes sell pretty well. And we're, we're hoping every time we do a revision, we're trying to figure out how to make each volume even more appealing to people. Uh, but the 1820, 1865 is the biggest, as you probably noticed, I mean, it's really, big. and you flip through it and there are so many of the writers that you immediately recognize as kind of founding figures in American literary history.
1: Well, let's use that volume as an example because You have Melville in that period, 1851 Moby Dick. So, as an editor, you must really be torn. You would probably, if you had your druthers, if people so use that phrase, would want to have all of Moby Dick in there because it's such a spectacular novel. But of course, you can't, you have to make choices. So that's my next set of of questions about how do you go about making those choices? When it came to Melville, what was your thinking since you're the editor of that volume? right, right. Did you think to yourself he's the he's the the most important figure of the of the period so we'll have as much as we can or well, how do you go about doing it yeah so it's difficult and
0: the kind of fun thing about being an editor over a long period of years and I started working on this volume in the year 2004 and the first publication that I was involved with was 2007 so we're talking about you know 18 years of working on this I'm you try out the anthology in, in the classroom, we, we also get responses, and I'm happy to talk about this down the road. We do market surveys and we get responses from people who are using the books. So here's my thinking about Moby Dick, because that's an interesting question. Um, Moby Dick, I can tell you, in 2022, is a really difficult book to teach to undergraduates. And my thinking is let's introduce undergraduates to Moby Dick by excerpting chapters. So they get a sense, first of all, of the story and second of all, the texture of the novel. So that's what we do. Um, and excerpting a novel can be tricky. I, I think it actually works with Moby Dick. We also have excerpts from Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was the best-selling novel of the 19th century and the first time i did it i left out the death of little eva and i had a footnote little eva dies and my, (laughs) you know what happened uh to little eva so uh for me it's good that i'm both an editor and a teacher because i i can get a sense of what's going on but we get several hundred responses to each edition from people who use it and that that can help us to guide us on to things, um, but it's actually it's a really difficult process because Norton wants the book to not be too long. You know, uh, at a certain point, it just becomes difficult to use, expensive to produce. So every edition, we're just sitting there, like what, what do, what do we really want to add? What can go? And because I love everything in there, it's it's a it's a hard process.
1: Well, when it comes to Moby Dick to get uh, back to your point, um, I'm doing a podcast soon with um, the editor of the new Oxford edition of Moby Dick. And I'll ask you that question about. <coughs> whether Oxford imagines that undergraduates are going to be taught Moby Dick or whether graduate students. It's an interesting question. Um, I was interested to notice that there have been a couple of movies, and even a TV show that I watched not too long ago, which really featured Moby Dick. Where the character who's the the lead character is well versed in the novel and the ordeals that he's going through, uh, not as difficult as Ahab's uh, ordeals, but they were difficult, and he actually makes references all the time to Moby mm-hmm. Dick. So, yeah, I imagine that Moby Dick is just known across the full spectrum of oh, readership. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And let me just say that. Norton has a critical edition of of Moby Dick that's really excellent.
1: Oh, yes, I've seen it. Yes, there's a third one now, right?
0: And um, for those people who buy the anthology, they can get that edition really cheap. It's something like five extra dollars gets you that edition. Now, it seems to me that every other year I teach Moby Dick in my undergraduate classes, and there's always some students who just go nuts over it. I mean, they really love it. And then there are students who kind of start – disappearing from the classroom for, for a few weeks. Because so as they find it, they find it too hard on. Um, so I go back and forth, but uh, really good undergraduates can read that novel and can get really excited about it.
1: Well, the funny thing, of course, is that if we were to, if you had produced your anthology back in the 19th century, Moby Dick would not be in it because he didn't become, right. or the book didn't become revitalized until it was it the 1910s or 1920s. Which right. brings me to the next question about things being, in favor and out of favor. How do you go about making those choices? Um, about what's in favor and out of favor? Right, you're making a judgment. You're making a kind of a, a scholarly stamp on the significance of a piece of literature.
0: Right, right, you know? right. So um, there's a couple things that are going on. Um, each volume is edited edit by a specialist in the period who's also a teacher. Um, Specialists in the period who are also teachers know what's going on in the field and they know what's going to interest people and they know what's interesting them as as scholars in the field. Um, I had mentioned that we do a market survey. We send out a market survey to everyone who adopts the book, and a lot of people respond to it. And we find in that survey, people uh, go through each selection and say what they're teaching. What they're not teaching and what they want included in in the anthology for the next edition, and that becomes information that we use. And it's not that we uh, just immediately adopt things, but it is it is really great to hear what what uh, people are reading and, and what people are doing. So,
1: the, the the people responding. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. The people <laughs> responding to your questionnaire. Are they students or are they the oh, no, no. these are the instructors?
0: These are the instructors okay. and they range from graduate students. And that, that's something we're talking about uh, a lot of the introductory classes are taught by graduate students. So 1 of the advantages of an anthology is that it helps to make people into more special You at that point. But yeah, anyone is teaching the book can respond to the, uh, the market survey and we look carefully at that, but but I'm. Um, it's not all we look at, it's not all we consider. And I, oh, I guess I need to you know, know. I got I go to conferences where people are talking about, you know,
1: what's happening, and that's where I learn things. And for each volume, I <clears throat> say so you're the, the editor of the second volume, 1820 to right, 1865. Right, right. Do you make those choices as to what goes in it? Or do you as the general editor right? That's another way of asking the question is Ultimately, do you make all the choices or do the editors of the respective volumes make their choices?
0: Good question. It's a collaborative process that actually takes between 6 and 12 months. I mean, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary <coughs> process in which I'm involved as the general editor, each volume editor is involved. Marion Johnson, who you've met on email, who's a vice president at Norton, in charge of the anthologies, is involved. And we go back and forth. We go back and forth. It's very collaborative, and um, that's act- in some ways the hardest part of coming up with the new edition—not right, well, but actually deciding what's going to work for the next edition.
1: Now, I might be uh, asking you to draw the curtain back, and maybe that's not fair, but yeah, but that's good. The the last volume, the uh, as in 1945 to the present. Uh, were there any discussions, emails, shot back and forth about say Philip Roth, where someone's saying, no, no, Philip Roth can't have him anymore because he's a terrible person. Did you get that kind of reaction as well? I think every this this has become an issue. Um because he's not the
0: only person that, that's had some issues over the last 10, 20, 30
1: Whoa. years. I Oh well, you must you, you must tell I'm us.
0: Speaking speaking for <laughs> myself. I don't know how we make these judgments. I'm not totally into this sort of thing. I think of Roth as a major influential figure and I like that he's in there. And if the editors of the volume wanted to make a strong case to pull him, we would consider that, but we would look at the market survey. And if 80% of the people using the anthology say, we wanna teach Roth, and when people teach Roth, They can, of course, address issues of whether a person is terrible or not. I mean, that's part of teaching. Uh, Herman Melville supposedly physically attacked his wife, okay? So do we pull him from the second volume or not? And you could do that with a lot of figures. Um, A lot of the white figures from the 19th century were racist. Um, Should Hawthorne be pulled? Should Cooper be pulled? Or should we be able in a sophisticated, complex way to address this sort of thing without making literary studies into a tribunal? So, I'm kind of into that we need to be able to discuss these sorts of things, and I'm not into the kind of censorship that says, I have decided this person is a bad person and, and should be
1: caught. Well, you mentioned some other people in the, uh. If volume, can you give us some names of people who have stirred controversy? Um, let me I mean, I know there are people who are not fond of John Updike. for a 2nd.
0: Um, well, 1 example, I, I could give is Gina Diaz. Okay, and that's where I'll stop. <laughs> if you go if you go to the um, National Museum of American art. In Washington, DC, you come to paintings and then there's little descriptions of the moral failings of the painters and I wonder, do we really need
1: that? Well, that's a very good question. I don't think we do, but uh, we live in a, a different kind of world. Let me ask you questions about the, uh, since you are the editor of one of the volumes. Let me ask you about. The editors of the other volumes, um. How are they chosen? How were you chosen uh, those many years ago to be the editor of your volume?
0: Okay, I'll I'll say how I was chosen. Okay. Um, Nina Bam, B-A-Y-M was the general editor at the time and she liked my work and she also liked the work of four other people in the field. She contacted us and asked us to evaluate the current anthology and asked us what we would do if we were to revise it. Uh, We each wrote up three, four, or five pages of what we would do, and she liked what I wrote, and she gave me the job. So that's how I got it. Um, Sandra Gustafson, who's the editor of the first volume, to me is just so outstanding in the field, that I suggested to Norton people that we meet with her at a conference and and chat with her and see if she'd be interested in what we thought about her. And we all liked her so much, we just hired her. So that was just one person. Typically, we interview two, three, or four people in the field. We ask around uh, people we know in the field who's really good, We would like to get people who are mid-career who can stay with us for a while. You know, I started out when I was young, and now I'm a bit older. Uh, But there's a process of seeing what these people would do with the next edition. And it's usually the general editor and the Norton vice president in charge of anthologies who makes the final decision. And I would argue Norton makes the final decision because they're the ones that write up the contracts.
1: All right, now, once you've chosen someone for the uh, volume to be the editor of a volume, what kind of directive, if any, do they get about how to write the introduction? What should be introduction? What should be out of the introduction? How does that handled? Right. Uh, The nice
0: thing is that the anthology is a good anthology. So, when someone inherits a volume, they have things they can work with. And the idea is not to throw everything out. Because the prior editors keep getting a portion of the royalties, um, which I think is a nice thing. So uh, what we do is we have like a little get-together in New York City and 505th Avenue at the Norton offices uh, for several days. And we just chat about the anthology. I mean, that, that's how we begin the process. Then everything that is done in any of the volumes goes to me, and I edit it. And I send it back, so we go back and forth. So it's actually not an easy job that I have because I'm watching over. 4 volumes, Marion Johnson, the uh, vice president editor at Norton also takes a look at the start and then she kind of surrenders it to me. So uh, the, the quick answer is you can work with what you have, but the idea is to make it better or to update it. Put your own stamp on it, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. When I began in 2004, I wanted to make it all mine, so I really worked hard for a couple of years to rework everything. And everything I wrote went to Nina Bam, who's a tough editor, so it went back and forth for a
1: while. We chatted briefly about this before we started recording. One of the things I noticed in reading the introductions not just the current uh introductions to the uh, volume, I mean, uh, the 10th edition, but also introductions from uh earlier editions, is that there's almost no reference to critical theory in the introductions for a period or a specific writer. Is that by design, or is that just the way it turned out?
0: I think both. I think both. Um, I think the critical theory dates, so that if you start quoting other critics, you're A, dating the anthology, and B. You're putting the the theoretical critics too much in charge of what you're doing. Uh, so we tend in the introductions, and I I don't think this is exclusively true. I think there are some exceptions. It's very light in the self-conscious use of literary theory. That said, that said, everything we do in the field is influenced by feminist studies. On Feminist literary theory, everything we do is influenced by uh, theories about thinking about race and historical studies has been influenced by so-called new historicism. So, from my point of view, theory is there, but it's implicit. And um, one of the reasons I was brought on board the Norton in 2004 is that my volume, 1820 to 1865, had virtually no representation of African American writers, which was absurd. So uh, my own work has been influenced by writings, theoretical writings, by Toni Morrison, Henry Louis Gates, and so on. So even though I don't quote these people, when I took over the volume, I was thinking What's the relationship between white and black writers and how can I articulate that kind of thing? And so. theory's on my mind, but it's kind of quietly there.
1: In, you don't have any uh, criticism standalone criticism in the volumes. You don't have a section, for instance, on Edmund Wilson, where you. Showcase well, we some of his better we don't writing. Have
0: separate sections on Edmund Wilson. What we do, we have, we are introducing critical clusters. This is a new thing. So mm-hmm. yet yeah, to give a specific example that's worked really well. Um I've heard from teachers, we've heard from the market survey. We continue to print Huckleberry Finn. And you brought up Philip Roth, but uh, Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn are hmm. all commercial because of the use of the N-word. We decided that the way to kind of frame that novel or give people ways of talking about the novel was to follow the publication, follow the printing of the novel with a critical cluster that includes people who hate the novel, but also includes Toni Morrison, you know, who says this is an essential novel about race in the United States. So that's something you might look at. It's in it's in Volume C, but um, we're thinking of doing that with other texts as well. So... Are, there's no standalone critic that we look at, like Lionel Trilling or Edmund Wilson, on. Um, but we're starting to think we need a little more critical voices, critical controversy in there.
1: Well, the reason I bring it up is that I was uh, preparing for this Moby Dick uh, podcast. Uh uh-huh. um, So I was looking at introductions to various editions of Moby Dick, and I read the Riverside edition introduction by Alfred. Is it Kazan or Kazan? Yeah, okay, so that's all, and it was that's really it was great. It was a terrific, terrific 10 page, not just introduction to the book, but about the thing that makes writing so or literature. So great. Yeah, it was a thrilling introduction, right? I think that that's great and I think that's
0: what we try to do in our anthology.
1: Yes, um, <laughs> before I go any further, I have to ask a question that was was. Uh, nagging at me. When did Norton, as the the publisher, change the format? Someone described to me the, uh, say, the first edition as a brick, because it's a really hefty volume, and it shapes somewhat like a brick. And then, of course, now you have a larger format, more volumes to cover the same periods. Right. What edition changed that? i I can't tell you for sure. Here's what I know, that I I started
0: doing it, uh, my first edition was 2007, when there were 5 volumes split, uh, and then the 2002 had a five-volume split. I know the initial one had the two-volume split. My guess is that that lasted for two or three editions, and then things just got so big that they divided it up, but I'm not entirely sure about that.
1: So the world then was before 1865 and after 1865. Right,
0: right. And and kind of the issue is um, I've done an analysis of this, but I can't give you the actual numbers. Uh, But in the first volume, there were virtually no women writers and virtually no black writers. So when you start to diversify the history of uh american literature it just gets bigger i mean it d- just gets bigger and so it did outgrow those those two volumes which focused back then on what were regarded as canonical and i can tell you i got my phd uh at stanford back um, around 1980 and i did a phd orals in american literature from 1620 to 1900 i don't think i read any women or blacks other than uh, emily dickinson as my Woman writer, and maybe Frederick Douglass, but I'm not entirely sure. So the field has dramatically changed over the last 3 decades.
1: All right, let's talk about your field, the 1820 to 1865 volume. Is there an arc um, that we can find in those decades?
0: Um, it depends how you tell the story and, and even though the volume ends at 1865, I've been working with the editor of the 1865 to 1914 to have a smooth transition because it does, that isn't how literary history works. I mean, it just it doesn't just stop at that point, but I would say the arc is from. American Literary Nationalism, as represented by William Cullen Bryant and James Fenwer Cooper and Catherine Cedric, to something like American Romanticism, uh, as represented by figures like Emerson and Melville, in particular. Uh, Another way of reading the anthology, though, is in relation to American history and what's happening in terms of the debate, for example, on slavery. So, when you introduce black writers, you're talking more about slavery and you're talking about the move towards a civil war. I mean, that's a really important uh, aspect of the volume now, especially, you know, once you have significant writings from Frederick Douglass and William Wells Brown and Francis Harper.
1: All right, I'm looking at your table of contents for your volume. And uh, I might have missed it, but I have to ask you is Abraham Lincoln in this volume. Lincoln's in there, so you missed it. Okay, good. Actually, I, it's actually, a, a, podcast, book. It's actually yeah.
0: a book that was published, I think, by Canoperate Viking on Abraham Lincoln is a literary writer. Uh, I mean, he's a very powerful writer.
1: Well, I was going to say that I did this podcast recently with a uh, law professor who's written a new book about the Constitution, and he actually says that uh, the Gettysburg Address is the core of our second Constitution, the one that really matters, where he talks about... Quality. Right. Do you have a Gettysburg Address in here? Well, let me just take a quick look at that. Uh, one thing I can tell you,
0: given your interest in Lincoln, is that this 10th edition has something new by Frederick Douglass that wasn't in the first edition. What? That's Frederick the Douglass', can talk about Frederick account. Douglass. That's Douglass's account of meeting with Abraham Lincoln, so that, that adds some continuity um, and let me see, so Lincoln, we have the house divided. We have um, Gettysburg address and we have the 2nd, inaugural. I mean, those are major pieces.
1: Yes, I see it now. Okay. Um, I, I take it that that's always been part of the anthology, the Gettysburg address.
0: I think, it, I mean, it was in there when I, when I took it over, I had, when I took it over, it was the 7th edition. Uh, I looked at the 6th edition to see what was going on. I, I. I did not study the first five editions, so I'm not sure when
1: exactly when it was introduced. Okay, all right. So I don't know that much about your period. I know Melville very well. Mm-hmm. Um, if I wanted to really appreciate that period, who should I turn to? First, second, and third. Just,
0: just pick up this anthology and read everything in it. All right, <laughs> that's not the answer you're looking for. So, well, I guess I want you
1: to tell me who you let me
0: really tell you, think. is. Let me, t- tell you, let me tell you who I love to read. Yes. That was my question. And I'm going to leave people up. I love Melville. I've been working on Melville my whole career. I love Hawthorne. Um, warts and all. I've been working on Hawthorne my whole career. I love Frederick Douglass. Uh, two of my last books are on Frederick Douglass. I think he's really powerful and complex and that we need to read more than just the 1845 narrative. I'm a big fan and admirer of Harriet Beecher and I think everyone should read Uncle Tom's Cabin. It has uh, problems that people have talked about, but it's a really powerful work that, that did what uh, one critic, Jane Tompkins, calls cultural work. Uh, Emerson is fascinating, Thoreau is really wonderful. Um, I don't know, I like, I like everything in there, but, but those, those figures in particular come to mind.
1: All right, so the Civil War is a, a major event in that period, of course. What do we turn to to understand the Civil War from a literary perspective?
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. One person is Frederick Douglass, and what you read, need to read is The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass that he published in 1881, and that includes his whole account of the Civil War. Um, and I added to this edition, and, and this, I think, is an important edition, I added a cluster at the end called Stories, Songs, and Poems from the Civil War that includes Louisa May Alcott, Edward Everett Hale. Uh, Julia Ward Howe, a bunch of other poets, and then Michael Elliott in the next edition added a cluster on Reconstruction. So you can read those side by side and get a really nice feel um, for, um, you know, how to think about the Civil War and Reconstruction. I have a book forthcoming on Albion-Torje. I'm going to bet that you haven't read Albion-Torje, is that right? that's right okay so he was a lawyer so you might want to read him his best known novel is a fool's Errand* from 1879 it was a bestseller and addresses the civil war and reconstruction um he's a little known writer now but he was very popular in his time he's not in the norton anthology because it's really hard to excerpt from his novels but that's that's where i would start albie and The book that I have a Torge coming out later this year, it's a collection of 18 essays on the literary Torge that includes three essays on Torge's use of law in American literature. So I think you'd find that especially interesting.
1: All right, you mentioned this book you have coming out. Tell us about your career. You said you went to Stanford, got your PhD from Stanford in 1980. Where did you go first to teach, or have you always been in Maryland?
0: Yeah, I had a, I had a really dull career, because I got my degree at Stanford, I got the job in Maryland, and I've been there since 1983. <laughs> well, right, you the, stayed in the same place, you've the
1: a lot of territory.
0: The, the wonderful thing about being at U Maryland is that I was very traditionally trained at Stanford. My first book is on Hawthorne and Melville, and James Fenimore Cooper. When I came to Maryland, I was introduced to a a department that was was really diverse, that was working in African-American literature. And I got to the point, I wanted to be able to talk to these people. And I started reading uh, Frederick Douglass and Douglass's friend and then rival Martin Delaney. So I went from doing a kind of conventional book on canonical figures and Melville Cooper, to doing a book on, uh, my second book was on Frederick Douglass and Martin Delaney. And I never would have predicted, you know, that that's the direction that I would have gone in. The other thing that happened while I was in Maryland during my career is that I started, um, in addition to doing scholarship and uh, scholarly monographs, I started doing editions. And I've actually done over 20 editions of different novels or, Editions uh, that are collections of essays on issues in the field and I find that I really enjoy that. So the Norton was a kind of natural development because I had published a number of editions. Of the most recent direction I've gone as I get older is I want to reach a more general audience. So my most recent book called The Failed Promise. Uh, Reconstruction, Frederick Douglass, and the Impeachment of Andrew Johnson—that was published last year by Norton—was a book that was reviewed in the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, and other places like that. I've never had books reviewed in in, in that kind of venue, and I've been giving talks all around the country uh, to general public kind of audiences about about what I'm what I'm doing. So. That book came out in 2021. I have another contract with Norton to do a book on Harriet Beecher Stowe, and I'm hoping to have that out by 2025. But again, kind of thinking about a more general audience, which isn't to say that I'm excluding specialist readers, but just the language is, is accessible for general readers and um, you know scholarly people in the
1: field. Um. You're listed in the book as a distinguished university professor. What does that mean?
0: What it, what it means is the University of Maryland, because it's not Penn State, and the big difference between Penn State and New Maryland is that people at Penn State, they all live there. And there's a kind of, we jokingly say, a kind of Stockholm syndrome. You fall in love with it. <laughs> And then when you make ten million dollars, you give two million dollars to Penn State, and they set up an endowed chair. Maryland doesn't have endowed chairs because students live all over the place. You know, they live in De- uh-huh. they live in Baltimore, they live in College Park. So the university set up this program of distinguished university professorships, and virtually all of them. Are scientists, the people on the committee that decide who's going to become a, a distinguished university professor of scientists. I'm the only distinguished university professor in the English department, and it is the highest honor in the university. I get a course relief. I get some money for uh, research uh, and travel, that that kind of thing. Additional money for research and, and travel and uh, gives me a nice Kind of sense of status within the university.
1: Well, sounds like quite an accomplishment if you're the only one in the humanities.
0: Yeah, right now uh, we have someone else, Mary Helen Washington, very distinguished African American. Is too retired, and and I'm talking about English. Uh, there, I think there is one in the in history too, but there aren't many. Whereas you know the physics department probably has four or five or six. Um. So yeah, it's it's a good accomplishment, and I think that's. The scientists who are on the committee, like that I have a lot of books, they like numbers. So if you put, a, uh, you know, that appeals to them.
1: Well, I'm uh, pretty familiar with the University of California system because I have my PhD from the um, Riverside campus mm-hmm. uh, and I think there are only 10 distinguished you know, university professors in the UC system only 10. And that's a huge system. It's the biggest right, one right. in the country. I, so it's not like
0: yours a That surprises me. My, my root. I can be wrong. My, I can be when wrong. I was a graduate student as a distinguished university professor at UCLA.
1: Well, I know a friend of mine was saying before he retired was a distinguished professor in the English department, but that's different from a university professor ship. Right. I think. Yeah. Um, I think. The 1 that the UC system has is very similar to the 1 that Harvard has, right? Um, yeah, Columbia right has that, too,
0: that that the distinguished university professor teaches when he or she wants. For example, and if um, um, that particular, whereas I, I, I teach 3 courses a year.
1: Really, do you teach how big are the classes? Are the lecture they're classes small.
0: No, they're actually small, the surprising thing about U Maryland, and let me just say this to parents who are thinking of sending their, their kids to U Maryland, uh, particularly if they're interested interested in the humanities. Unlike the UCAL system, we don't have big lecture classes in the humanities I'm mm-hmm. the introduction to the English major right now that has 20 students. I typically have under 30 students in a class. Uh, The upper division classes are small. They're like seminars. Students get a great education and they go on to law school. They go on to get graduate degrees in in English, et cetera, et cetera.
1: So let's uh, move towards wrapping up. I wanted to ask you, so your recommendation is that people who are teaching introductory classes, especially uh, assistant professors or lecturers or graduate students should really look closely at the 2 volume, a shorter anthology that Norton produces.
0: That's my recommendation for some people, but I know there are some people who like getting the box because I think there's a discount if you get the box and, and they like having more selections. So, you know, every, to each, uh, you know, what they prefer to do in my introductory classes, I use the 2 volume split. If I'm using an anthology, I don't use, you know, the, the 5 volume.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, so you have a book coming out next year, a book plan for 2025 anything else we should know about Um,
0: not really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Okay, uh, well, again, I was very excited to do this because the Neuron uh, anthologies, both the English literature and the American literature, I've always had a pride of place, I think is the phrase, in my libraries, wherever mm-hmm. I've lived. And I have almost all of them, and I'm just delighted to dip into them every now and then whenever I need to refresh myself on a particular writer or, better yet, a period. And yours mm-hmm. was a very, very good introduction to your period, by the way. I read yours very carefully. I don't wanna say I just skimmed the others, but I didn't read them as carefully as I read yours. And you're a terrific writer. Let me just ask you, by way, of closing, how did you become such a good writer?
0: It's funny you ask, because my dissertation director asked me that five years after I finished my dissertation. Obviously, thinking I wasn't a good writer when I did the dissertation, I think one thing that really helped me uh, and this kind of shows my age is that I found it very useful to have access to a computer. So when I wrote the dissertation, I typed it up in a Smith Corona typewriter. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really hard to edit and revise when you have to keep retyping the whole thing as opposed to using a computer. So I I free write on a computer, I edit constantly, I share my work with other people. And as I tell my undergraduates, the more you write, the better you become. So you're gonna do a lot of writing in my class, you're gonna become better writers. And I've been writing for decades and and that, that helps.
1: Well, when you were uh, becoming a good writer were there particular critics or scholars that you uh, said wow i wish i could do that
0: i i I can't say i guess i liked writers that had a voice so one writer that i really liked was nina bam who was uh, at -hmm. university of illinois for many years and she wrote about women writers in the 19th century and i would think i like the idea of having a strong personal voice, even though you know I'm doing literary criticism. I still, I, I went to Columbia as an undergraduate. I, I still think about people like uh, Alfred Kazin, who you mentioned, and uh, Lionel Trilling, those people who, who could write very clearly and had a, a voice, I, I like that. Whereas I tend to have some problems with overly theoretical um, writing with jargon so that's me
1: all right um hold on while i uh sign is off and i'll uh, um, talk to you for just a minute while uh after i close all right so we've uh, been talking today with robert levine university of maryland the general editor of the northern anthology of english i'm, I'm sorry american literature all five volumes of it he's also the a volume editor of the second volume, 1820 to 1865. And you told us all kinds of interesting stuff, but important stuff about how we end up with the books that we read. The anthology serves a very important function in the university curriculum, certainly, but also for the general reader. And I said, I have mine on my shelf and I'm 40 years away from uh, uh, graduate school, but I still dip into it all the time. So it's an important kind of book and everyone should have one, I think. So anyway, I really appreciate taking the time, Bob, to do this with me today and uh, looking forward to the next edition. I assume you'll be part of that as well.
0: Yeah, thank you.